and welcome to Going Off Track. Hello. I'm Jonah, joined here by Brad. Yeah. Um, Stephen is not here right now, but Stephen is on this podcast. He's on it. He's on it. Um, yeah, and he's, he's on this uh, intro in spirit. He's on this intro in spirit. But yeah, um, Stephen's on this podcast, and so is a guy named Andy Gill, who you may know from a band called Gang of Four. I'm, I know him from a band called Gang of Four. Yeah, that's how most of us know him. But um, yeah, we I got an email from someone saying he was in town, and uh, obviously me and Brad, big fans, um, seminal post-punk band. <sighs> I was going to use that word, man. It's, yeah, Fucker. it's true. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you know, I'm sure you've heard their album Entertainment. Um, Andy's also produced albums for, producer for Red Hot Chili Peppers album, works with so many bands now, has just an incredible history. Yeah. Wouldn't you say so, Brad? Yeah, and we definitely touch on some of that. We do. Um, and we get to geek out a little bit, too. We geek which... out about gear. We geek out about just what the scene was like back then, what it's like now. And we t- actually talk a little bit, believe it or not, about their new record, which is called What Happens Next and comes out in the States on February 24th. And um, it's uh, the original vocalist, John King, has left. Um, but... Uh, there's a bunch of other singers singing on this album. Elson Mossart from The Kills, um, Big Pink's Robbie Furs, um, and then German and Japanese superstars yeah. who <laughs> me and Brad aren't familiar with, but I'm sure millions of people are. Yeah. Um, we touch on that. And then then they've got a whole to- a nationwide tour of the States. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty much all through March. So Yeah, they're look. playing all over the country in March. Um yeah, I'm sure they play stuff from the whole career. So, um, including the grog shop in Cleveland. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Brad just awesome. asked me if the grog shop was still where it was, and I was like, I think it it moved about ten years ago. <laughs> Brad hasn't been there in twenty years. The old grog shop. I don't know if anyone remembers that. Seminal. It was a seminal rock club for Cleveland. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was like didn't have air conditioning. It was this tiny little shithole. But I, I mean, I saw like you know at the drive-in there like uh, just. Uh, like the Get Up Kids saves a, like a bunch of bands there, Silkworm, and uh, now it's moved to the other side of Coventry and has air conditioning and is much bigger, um, but still, still a pretty intimate club. Still got the flavor. I actually have never United Nations has never played there. I haven't played there. I don't think in like eight or nine years. It's been a really long time. It's time to it's time to go home, Jonah. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny though. Like I go back. I went back there actually last time I was home, and it's like. Almost all the same people work there. Like, it's like door guy, like bartender. Everyone's like, what's up? Like, it was so wild. I was like, man, I feel like it's like I moved, like I haven't moved to New York and I moved to like eight years ago. It's good, man. It's good yeah. to be able to come back to that. Yeah. B- beer was so incredibly cheap compared to here. I was just like <laughs> buying rounds for everyone. People were like, are you sure? I was like, a beer's $3 here. In New York, this would be like $8. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Anyways. Uh, Andy Gill, Gang of Four, check out their new record and listen to what he has to say because this dude has been around way longer than you and knows his shit. And if, um, if you need any t-shirts made while you're on tour at the Grog Shop. Yes, yes. If your band does come through the Grog Shop, um, get your shirts (laughs) made by Commonwealth Press. Nice save, Brad. Uh, they're our our sponsor for this episode. Um, if you go to cwpress.com slash podcast, you can get a half a dozen free shirts with your order. Um, Repeat that. CWPress.com slash podcast. 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 Six free shirts. Six free shirts with your order. 
What's uh, the minimum order you got to get six free shirts with? I'm not sure. You, we should probably know that. We should, but you know what? You, you can find out. Everyone over there is really cool. So I'm sure if you drop them a line, they'll let you know. And uh, They're very cool. They they only do this because they like us. They feel sorry for us that we don't have any other sponsors. It's pretty sad. We've been doing a, like 140-something episodes. They only knew who we turned down. Coca-Cola, Ford, all those other I'm just yeah, I mean bags. Yeah, Ford were really bummed, but it's like it just doesn't really fit, you know what I mean? No, it doesn't fit in a car. Nope. Um yeah. <laughs> Anyways, ladies and gentlemen, let's get into it with Andy Go. It's going on track! We got like six feet of snow in the last like couple weeks or something. Really? Yeah. In Boston. Yeah, yeah. Our first drummer lives lives up there. <clears throat> he was emailing me that it was a bit difficult. Yeah, crazy difficult. Crazy, yeah. Good lobsters. Yeah, very good lobsters. I've never been to Boston for more than a day. I always end up doing something for the day and then have to come right back. Mm. But I always think about that line in Spinal Tap where he's like, "Eh, it's not a big college town." <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's. <laughs> It's uh, it, in a film full of great lines that does stand out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have any of you guys ever seen like the full eight-hour version that's been floating around? No, no, I haven't. I didn't know about that. That'd be too much. There's a, yeah, that's there's a like too a, much pain. Uh, an unedited <laughs> one that um, that they say like, look, we don't want that out there because what we cut is what we cut. Yeah. But, eight hours but, of Spinal Tap. Yes. Fuck. <laughs> Um, I mean, I went to the I went to the London premiere of that film with um, a couple of Gang of Four people, and we were kind of, you know, obviously it's very funny, but because it's so real, <laughs> we we were kind of didn't, you know, we we're like, oh, fuck yeah, that's exactly what happened, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's just funny, but it's not funny, you know. It's like it's pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah, that exactly that, you know, oh, that man. girlfriend, you know, with the yeah. <laughs> All of it, you know. It hit too close to home. It it hurt. It, it, yeah, it, it hit her and everything. Yeah, yeah. The girlfriend and that. Yeah, there's a lot in there. Yes, there is. The other one is bad news. You ever see that? Oh yeah, bad news is. Oh, no. with um Rick Mail, Nigel Planer, yeah, and my, um, my um, Adrian Edmonds. My sister-in-law was co-wrote that. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. That one's awesome. What? Lisa Mayer, <sighs> my wife's Catherine Mayer, and Lisa Mayer wrote The Young Ones with Rick, who she was living with at the time, and and they and they co-wrote that news thing, yeah. Bad news, right? That's what it's called, <clears throat> right? The, the one about the and band. And she, she's always pissed yeah, off it's... because a lot of people think that that was like, inspired by Spinal Tap, but it, chronologically, it's just kind of just before it. Oh, really? Yeah. I love that one. Really? Yeah. Huh. <clears throat> That one really hits close to home because it starts off and they're like, you know, unknown. Yeah, I like mm. that one. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> you I, ever, you I, never I, saw it? I never saw it. You no. got to see it, man. Yeah. It's oh, brilliant. dude, you'll, it's it's all over YouTube. It's amazing. I remember growing up, well, period growing up, but here um, MTV would show after 120 minutes, the early one, they would show comic strip live and then the young ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was like. <laughs> I mean, uh, we're like, like this was perfection. Like we didn't know what was going on. Like, what is this show? And we just, I still have every episode. I like have every DVD of all those programs. It's so damn funny. That's so insane. It's oh, great, wow, that's it's great. great. It's, so, it's so unapologetically childish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah it sounds a lot like growing up in America. 
well, we've been rolling. Do you want to introduce our guest? Yeah, sure. Today we're here with Andy Gill from Gang of Four. Thank you so much for coming by. My my great pleasure. Um, did you just get into the, the States recently? Uh, last night. Last night? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How was your yeah. trip? Um, it was fine. It was fine. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. Yeah, yeah. Man, I always wonder about people that have spent their entire lives touring. Like, do you have it mastered just going from time zone to time zone? No, I wish, I, you know, I always try to master it, but it's, the, you know, the simple fact is that you will get jet lag and, you know, you will, uh, you know, af- after a long flight and then, you know, the, the, the two hour taxi drive that crawls along and they get stuck in traffic, just please let me out of here. But no, you never, you never quite, you know, it's always a pain in the ass. <laughs> is it more of a pain in the ass now than it used to be? Or it always was? I was, funny enough, on my way here from Manhattan, I was in the cab thinking, I think it used to go a bit faster than this yeah. back in the day, you know, in the kind of like, in 1980, I think there were less cars around, you know? <laughs> I think I mean, you're right. There's, um, my friend Anton Corbin, the, um, photographer now director um showed me a whole heap of pictures that he took of, of gang of war in 1980 in new york and the amazing thing is what new york looks like it just you know when you see pictures of like the 40s and the 30s now and it looks like another world yeah it's like that yeah yeah there's like there's nothing there there's no there's very little advertising the streets are kind of half empty yeah it looks like this wonderful place you know <laughs> those you- cars are bigger the cars are huge, <laughs> huge cars. Less cars, but bigger. These whales going around, yeah, yeah. and they and they kind of they flop around. Yeah, the suspension's so soft. You yeah, know? Yeah. <laughs> Where did you guys play here in 1980? Do you remember? <sighs> Same place we always play. Um, yeah. Was it called Irving Plaza then, or uh, I remember playing the Roseland Ballroom. Is that yeah. still there? No, no but it closed, closed recently. Right, that was a good gig. Yeah, yeah. that was like New Year's Eve. Uh, yeah. Oh, and then. You know, very early on, we used to play this little club called Haraz. Okay. Does that ring any bells? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But yeah, Irving's great. That's still there. Yeah. Well, we're playing there in, uh, in March. You don't happen to know the date, do you? It's it, um, March 6th, something like that. Okay. Cool. Right on. Yeah, that, yeah. I saw you, I saw a gang of four in, it's either 91 or 92. It was at the second HF festival. You remember mm. that um, in Virginia, mm. and it was this crazy lineup. I remember the Laws played with with Gang of Four. Yeah, it was it was a show with um, it was like a festival show. So it was like the Laws, Violet Femmes, okay. um, Robin Hitchcock came out and played a little bit. And I wasn't doing drugs at the time, so I'm pretty sure I remember uh, this accurately. Okay, well, I think you probably were because I can't remember that. <laughs> so one of us, one of us was. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that gig at all. I mean, there was something around that time when we did, we went out with Public Enemy and Sisters of Mercy, which is huh. quite a strange lineup. No way. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, what was that like? It was it was funny because uh, Sisters of Mercy were closing the show, but Public Enemy kept turning up really, really late, so they kind of had to close the show there's all that this games gamesmanship like who who was going to close the show but uh and there was somebody on before us but i've forgotten who it was wow, so you just show up late enough you get to close the show yeah <laughs> i saw public see- enemy once and um uh 
Flavor Flav didn't even go on stage. He just stood off stage and yelled Brilliant. into the microphone. And you could hear him. And he was there. You saw him walking around. But he just never got on stage. <laughs> Funny. And uh, on that tour, uh, Gail Ann Dorsey was, was playing bass and singing with us. You know Gail, you know, who, who's been playing with Bowie for years and years and years. Yeah. You know what I mean, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so she was playing on that tour, and all the Public Enemy guys were all trying to get off with her, um, <laughs> all coming up and <laughs> saying things to her. <laughs> hey. <laughs> <laughs> Flavor Flav was in a studio that I was working in in probably 92, and he... Taped it, signed a twenty dollar bill and taped it up on the wall. Mm. And the the engineer's like, "What? What's that all about?" He's like, "You know, man, if I ever go broke, I'll just come back here and that's my twenty. <laughs> <laughs> so I can never go broke." <laughs> he just went around the city taping up twenties. I guess. Crazy. So, not there. I just so. I just learned recently <laughs> that pu- that uh, Public Enemy actually sued and like settled with Madonna because apparently Justify My Love like ripped off one of their songs. Mm. <laughs> yeah 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 they like literally like i think they're credited hold on i mean i'm crazy. sitting at a computer has, uh, that, has that happened to you guys a lot where people have sampled your songs and not not asked that type of thing yeah funnily enough i was looking into uh, there's a moby song called body rock yeah. okay you know it's a big hit yeah well that uh, that's my guitar riff so, <laughs> from Gang of Force and What We All Want. Right. And um, I'm just kind of looking into that at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the, the trouble is that there's, there's time limits on these things and that was quite a long time ago. But, you know, you never have time to get around with these things. You yeah. Know? Um, and I swear, when I heard um, Chili Peppers, uh, is it called Can't Stop? Does that ring a bell? Don't stop, can't stop. No, it's about I don't know ten years ago, over ten years ago, and I heard that. I thought thought I was going for. (laughs) And um, which song? Which song is it? It's going for, but and I I couldn't place it. And they went, "Oh my god, it's the Chili Peppers!" And and the thing was, it's they hadn't just kind of like borrowed the song. But the production was all really Gang of Four. You know, they got a lot from you guys. They did, yes, to they did. put it kindly. Yeah, <laughs> a, yeah, yeah. They funked it up a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I bumped into uh, Flea in London. Uh, Damien Hurst was having a exhibition in, in London uh, when he was selling billions of pounds worth of art. And uh, Flea was there. And we, one of the things he said to me was, um, thanks for not suing us. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when you when you produced that record, that was what Jack Sherman was playing guitar. Jack for them? Sherman was it exactly? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, Jack and Anthony didn't have a very good relationship. Um, they'd be sort of abusing each other on stage. And I don't know if you remember this, but Jack took them to court for emotional damage or something. Well, I read something like he was, but it, he didn't succeed. But. <laughs> I saw he was really upset about something about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing, how he wasn't invited. Like him and Dave Navarro, I guess, weren't because they only played on one record. Uh-huh. And it's just that kind of stuff, like, so crazy. Like, to, you can tell just like holding on to that stuff for so long and it just, it's got to mm-hmm. be. Mm-hmm. But he, he was, I mean, Jack Sherman was, was really influential in that early band. Yeah. You know, they didn't know much about, you know, Parliament Funkadelic and, and stuff like that. 
Jack introduced him to that stuff. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, and he was a very cool guitar player. Yeah, mm-hmm. that is, that's amazing. I mean, um, for the new record, did you do the production yourself on it or did you work with someone else? But the, the new Gang of Four record called What Happens Next released <laughs> on, when is it? February 24th. February 24th. That record. Yeah. That's the one I'm referring to, yes. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I, I produced it, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm trying, I, and, and uh, uh, Simon Goggly mixed it, which was a really good move. In the past, sometimes I've just done everything, and I think it's it's a bad idea. I want I want input from other people, you know, as a sounding board, and 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 to move things along a bit. Um, so that was a good move, and I think next time try and get in as a more of a co-producer or something you know i just think it kind of can speed things up a little bit you know um because uh i ain't the fastest producer on the planet but uh, <laughs> get somebody to bear some of the <clears throat> technical load not the technical load so much but oh, i don't know I, I i did get in um a young guy like in the kind of final third of the making the record um called josh rumble who kind of helped me with finding some sounds and programming some like synth bass and stuff like that uh so yeah i made a step in that direction i mean i'd imagine like your guitar sound and everything i mean i'd imagine is it pretty much like set like do you experiment at all in the studio or i'd imagine you have a pretty dialed in at this point i no i don't really i mean the um i mean it, i think the funny thing is is that like when, when you kind of compare the different gang of four records you can sort of tell the guitars coming from the same place but they all sound quite different yeah. you know um especially on the, the the first like four or five records they're all pretty different from each other you can tell it's the same kind of rhythmic approach and you know that kind of thing and the kind of abstract noise and all that but with i mean we made a a record called content in 2000 that came out in 2011 and i was using an amp for all of that stuff i was using um actually a pv amp which is like a fender twin kind of thing um but on this record i didn't use an amp at all everything was direct into the computer and I just put, you know, I was just like, basically threw out any preconceptions and just sort of like, do what you want, you know. So um, I just kind of DI it into the computer and just sort of try different plugins on it and sort of put some distortion on it and then more distortion and then some more distortion until the poor little guitar was just, could barely breathe. And it was just like this, you know, struggling to get out of the speakers, you know. It's a bit like... You know, in the, in the sixties, like those um, people like Jeff Beck and Clapton and stuff, they do things like cut holes in the speakers and stuff to kind of fuck up the sound even more. You know, um, it it was a little bit like that, a modern day equivalent of that, and just um, so you know, using all kinds of plugins that aren't made for guitar. You know, um, to get to get cool sounds you know and it, it was really just sort of like just just follow your follow follow your instincts kind of thing and not be worried about you know i think i think a lot of guitarists guitarists can be quite conservative can't they 
you know, like the, your 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 warm tone, and, right? You know, and all, all this stuff, and um, you know, they, well, they, they, a lot of people would be quite upset, you know, to learn that I'm putting things directly into a computer and putting digital plugins on them. You know, no, it's super. I mean, it's fresh because I think the hardest thing in any, whether you're a guitar player or <clears throat> a producer, is learning how to unlearn, how to like, mm. how to do things wrong. You know mm. what I mean? Yeah, I've always been good at that. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean, on those early records, like from the eighties, mm. what we, I mean, you, I, I think you had a really, I think you, I mean, I'm sure it's part of it's the way you play, but what, what were you using then in terms of amps and stuff? Well, it, it's it's the same thing really because you know back back then, so late seventies, yeah, you know, it was the same thing. Guitarists were always going, well, you got to have valves, you know, you got to have a valve amp because of. Vowels are about warmth and right. somehow soul, you know, because they glow. Sometimes they're kind of living, you know, and there's all this kind of mythology about right. what how you should make a guitar. But I just went for a transistor amp, uh, and there, it's a brand called Carlsborough, which is a British brand. I'm not even sure if you ever got them here, but um, and they, people look down at them because they were cheap, right. And they were transistor, not valve. You right. know? So everybody kind of sneered at them. Right. But it made this cold, brittle sound, which absolutely suited me. You know. Yeah, we had the P- we had PV amps that did that. Kind of the same thing. Right. Pretty inexpensive, mostly solid state. Yeah. But um, I mean, there, there was there were those those Roland jazz yeah, yeah, things yeah. that were solid state. Yeah. But I hated them. No, they were, could, you, they were terrible. They were terrible. Yeah. No, I mean, your guitar tone was... I mean, that was the thing, those records. It just popped, man. Mm. It didn't sound like anything else. I mean, obviously, stylistically, was a lot of it, but you definitely had... I mean, that makes a lot of sense, knowing that you were were playing with solid-state amps, because, Mm. yeah, it just... It was piercing. Yeah. Brutal. (laughs) Yeah. That's interesting. Whenever I think of solid-state amps, I think of, like, Pantera or just super gainy, like that kind of artificial overdrive, like no mids. I mean, he's right. It can be. I guess it just yeah. depends. Also, there is a bit of a myth to the tubes. I used to. I've got this old Gibson amp that's completely solid state, and you'd never know if you plugged into. It's it a, like a, a Gibson amp, and it's solid yeah, state. It's from like the '60s. Oh right. And it's like, I mean, obviously, it has a lot of big old pieces of metal in there and tra- and transformers, yeah. but um, it, it sounds like a tube amp. It's really cool. Mm. What was sort of the reaction like to? Um to those early records sort of when they came out like entertainment was it did you feel like did it catch on right away or did it take a while kind of for people to kind of understand it or get into a, it a small minority were were passionately in favor and and generally speaking there was a bit of confusion about it like is this good or not you know and then sort of slowly it was sort of became it became good slowly <laughs> it be, you know did you have any of those questions? Like, because I feel like sometimes when you put something out, you're like, I don't know. Like, did you know, like, this is going to be, this is, we made something really special, or was it just kind of, oh, we made a record? Let's see. Mm. No, it's funny you say that because, as far as I was concerned, I was absolutely certain, you know, to me, you know, uh, I was like, I'd say to other people around me, like in the band, or I mean, I'd say, you know, this is groundbreaking. This is going to change the rules. This is amazing. And they just laugh at me. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, I remember saying, this deserves to be laughed at. I remember saying to our manager, Rob, uh, it, this is like um, the left bank in Paris in the 1920s. Uh, we're making a new language here. <laughs> 
then he just kind of like collapsed <laughs> collapsed on the floor in fits of hysterics, you know, which which uh, I think that deserved that treatment. <laughs> It's your duty. It's your duty as a young artist to believe that you are a god. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I, yeah. I think I was how else could you get through it all? Really, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. We've it's had a easy. couple of people in in the in the studio here who've been, you know, at the at the forefront of like the American punk scene, like you know, early hardcore, and some people that. But you know, for someone who was there, you know, when it was over overseas, like like what was it like? What did we miss here that happened over there? Well, I, I, yeah, interesting. I, I, you know, I suppose the kind of post-punk thing was was happening around Britain. You know, in in Manchester and in, in these regional places. As, you know, in, in Scotland and 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 Manchester and Leeds, there were the, the, you know the Gang of Four, uh, um, um, what are they called? You know, uh, Control, the film Control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that that you know that all those bands, um, and I guess there must have been American equivalents, but I'm just struggling to think of who they were at that point. I suppose a lot of that got swallowed well, up with like disco and the quote unquote new wave, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think you had some some um, controls about Joy Division. Joy Division. That's yeah. what I was, that's what I was just trying to say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's an Anton Corbin film. I was going to say it's Anton Corbin. Yeah, John. I think we interviewed the actor who played him years ago. Oh, did you really? Yeah, yeah. Was his name Sam Riley? Yeah. Yeah, we interviewed him. We yeah. had a show, a TV show, and we had him on, and uh, which was that soundtrack was amazing. I think the Killers were on it, and a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. And, we had him yeah. on the Rock Show. Yeah, we had him on the rock show. Yeah. He, he walked in, he was like, I've never been interviewed before. And we're like, well, welcome. <laughs> yeah, one of the first shows I did for Stephen, we had on Mick Jones. That was really cool, too. All right. Yeah, yeah what were you listening to? Because, yeah. I mean, uh, like, I don't hear, to, to know, like, when you guys were putting out those those first few records, like, I, don't, I couldn't hear anything that I would think would be references. I know. I th- the, the, the stuff that I was listening to, you know, probably wouldn't seem to be that relevant. So... Uh, most of the stuff I liked was American music, um, you know, ab- absolutely, you know, worshipped um, the couple of the Velvet Underground records. Right. Um, and then as a kid, you know, I was obsessed with Jimi Hendrix, um, and Bob Dylan, the band, you know, the band and uh, the way they told stories in their songs was quite influential because, you know, I, I love the idea of songs on stage being like a little mini drama. So there'd be a, one character singing one thing, another character would be like the narrator or, or obs- making observations on what the other, per- you know, so right. you can have quite, uh, you can set up sort of quite interesting, absorbing narratives. Right. You know. And that, that a little bit came from the band, but um, also just from theatre. But uh, and reggae was, um, you know, was my my big thing. And uh, and originally it would be like ska reggae early, you know, the early stuff like pre Whalers, um, you know, Dave and Ansel Collins, that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, <clears throat> then early Whalers, because like the sort of classic dub thing didn't happen until mid to late. 
well, mid seventies, right. you know. So, um, so that was that was a big thing. James Brown. So, not much British right. stuff. Although, you know, I loved the Who and and early Kinks and stuff like that. I guess the Stones, you know. The Kinks are the ones that slashed up their speakers, I think. Getting yeah. back to that. Going back to that idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that was the Kinks. That's okay. what I heard. That they, they couldn't figure out how to get the distortion, so they slashed up their speakers. <laughs> In sheer frustration. <laughs> yeah. and, and, of course, the, the, the uh, Dr. Feelgood was, was, a, was, a, was a huge kind of bolt of electricity. You know, was, that was... Um, so when punk came along... Because the feel goods were like mid seventies, you know. Uh-huh. I remember seeing them in seventy four and having my mind blown, you know, because it was so so dramatic and robotic and to the point and rhythmically cool, you know, all of those things. And when punk happened, although you know, I loved a couple of the Sex Pistols tracks, you know, um, um yeah. I wasn't that interested. Right. Although I did go to, sh- I mean, the the great thing about punk was that you you could you go to little clubs, and you talk to the band afterwards right. or before, or you know, you you rub shoulders with everybody. It wasn't like going to, God forbid, like a Grateful Dead concert or something, right. you know, where 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 the rock stars were untouchable and yeah. you know. But one of the cool things about punk was was you, you, everybody talked to everybody and you know and, and got on with it. But musically, you know, I wasn't that interested. When when the Pistols came to Leeds and played Leeds, I went to the cinema instead. Um, my friends all went to to see this. I said, I've got nothing to learn from them. Right. You know, um, I, I kind of learned enough from Doctor Feelgood. You know, right. who was kind of pre pre punk. You know, and um, yeah. Yeah, I was curious. I mean, did you feel did you feel a kinship with bands like The Clash and the Sex Pistols and that stuff, or did you feel like you guys were kind of on your own as far as like sonically what you were doing? You know, I, I definitely enjoyed some of the some of those records. You know, London's Calling and stuff. De- definitely enjoyed it. You know, but I didn't feel a kinship. No, I didn't feel that we were you know in the, going in the same direction. Um. You know, it's it's. I, I suppose you know you you, you kind of th- maybe Talking Heads was a bit closer to Gang of Four, you know. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely hear that. Um, and Talking Heads got funkier after they kind of checked out Gang of Four. <laughs> That's interesting. And I remember this is a true story. I remember at playing at Hurrahs, and David Byrne was like in the front row. And he had a notebook, and was like, <laughs> he was literally putting down notes. And and somebody standing next to him shouted, like, "Hey, David Burns making notes!" <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. So. Were you guys That's wearing hilarious. really really big suits at the time? Um, well, our singer John King was wearing quite a big double-breasted suit. Um, I'm not suggesting that that's where he got the idea from. (laughs) Um, With the new record, I mean, I know you worked with um, kind of like a handful of different vocalists on Mm -hmm. it. I mean, what was sort of, how did you kind of decide who you thought you would kind of want to bring in? Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, see, when I started doing that, you know, Old singer John had said, yeah, "You know what? I, I, you know, I don't want to do it anymore. I don't don't want to tour. I, I you know, don't want to go in the studio. You know, so, so I'm done." So, uh, well, 
I want to go in the studio and I'm, you know, I want to make a new record. And so, so it's like, well, how do I do that? And so, it, you know, I didn't have a plan. It's kind of making it up as I went along and just doing things. And, and I thought, and I didn't have any kind of new replacement singer in mind or anything like that. So I think one of the early ones, there's a song uh, on the album called Graven Image. And I remember listening to that song Dominoes by Big Pink and thinking what a massive sound it was and it was sort of like a cool, cool groove. And so that, set me off um, a little bit on thinking about Graven Image and how that would go. So I thought, well, I'll get in touch with Robbie Furs, who obviously sang uh, Dominoes, and see if he wants to come and sing this one. I mean, that was the sort of rather <laughs> uh, simplistic train of thought there. And uh, and he, so he came down and and, um, and did that. And, th- and then I was doing... I, I had been in the studio with The Kills about a year before and and I thought God Alison would be amazing for you know uh, I I had at that at that point this song called England's in my bones and I thought she'd be uh, perfect for that and um, so she came down and she ended up singing a couple of songs it was a bit sort of haphazard and not very planned you know and then <clears throat> my friend Herbert Grunemeyer um, was talking to me about what I was doing in the new record and he said uh do you, want, do you want me to sing a song? And I thought, well, that's a, kind of a weird combo. I don't know if you're familiar with... I'm not. Yeah, I mean, he's he is flat out Germany's biggest ever rock star. Really? Yeah, by a long, you know, it's like every German has got at least one of his records, you know. And, Bigger than uh, Hasselhoff? Oh, much, <laughs> much, and also more serious, you know. But, yeah. Um, and he's a great actor as well. He was talking of control he's in that okay he's in the three anton films he's in all of them um a most wanted man he's in that and who's he who's he in, i just watched that like not two weeks ago which who's he in that most wanted man yeah which, which he's, character he's is like the guy with glasses i think he's a lawyer or something okay lawyer or a doctor i think a lawyer um all right um but he his he's very well known for Das Boot, the the oh, yeah, submarine yeah. film, oh, yeah. that amazing submarine film. He's the young lieutenant on the boat. Um, oh wow! Who the others don't like? Uh, who's taking photographs and stuff? Um, anyway, so he's a well known actor, and he's this sort of like superstar in Germany. Um, so I, I wrote. I thought, well, I've got this track and I've got that track. Um, maybe he could sing this one. And then I went back and listened to his records just to kind of put my finger on what it was that I thought was brilliant. And it's these rather kind of angst-filled, painful ballads that he does that are kind of emotional. And um, he did one a couple of years ago with uh, Anthony from Anthony and the Johnsons. Uh, okay. okay. Kind of duetting on it. It's very beautiful. Um, so I kind of got in my mind that that was the thing that I, I wanted something, a bit of that. But so it's, uh, so, but it, you know, but it had to be a gang of force and it had to be me and, but it somehow reach out to incorporate that world as well. And it was quite hard work, but I came up with the song, The Dying Rays for him to sing. 
And I kind of wrote that with his voice in mind and stuff. Um, and he does it amazingly well. Crazy. I used to see Ellison's punk band play when I was in college. She's in band from Florida called Discount. Who like I don't called what they were called Discount. Discount. Yeah, good name. And they were they would yeah they would play like at my dorm and stuff. And she was so so like really shy, but such a great had such a great voice. Um, so it's so cool to see because is she based out of the UK now? Is she over well, there? Well, she's a lot? back. I think she. I think she's sort of got somewhere in Nashville. Okay. Or, I think. I think she does have somewhere in Nashville, but I, I don't think she did have a flat in London. I'm not sure if she still got it or not. Yeah. But they, she travels a lot. But, uh, is having the vocalist in mind? Is that is that where like your songs come from? Like like what what for you is first? Where how does it go from a thought to a song? Um, I I, I would say the the Herbert one is 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 not typical um but when because when he offered to sing on something i i i kind of looked at all the stuff he did and figured out what what it was that i that i loved because some of it some of his stuff i'm i i don't like so much the more kind of rock and roll stuff but it's these kind of ballads that he totally inhabits with his 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 whole being and his voice you know so i wanted to do something like that so i had to kind of work at that not so much with anybody else. I mean, I you know, I kind of do the song the way I hear it, and uh, and then I uh, you know, and then and then try people singing it. You know, um, I, I don't think I design things particularly for people's voices. How many songs have you had just like you know started and, and left alone over the years that ended up on records, and how many do you have left? Um, well, one song on this album is called First World Citizen. And I actually did, I actually wrote that and recorded a version of it in 86. <laughs> and it was just on a, on a two inch tape in the basement somewhere. And when I was working on this new record, the, the, the tune for it kept coming into my head. And, and I thought about it and I thought about the words, um, because I've written songs from that time that I can't even remember what you know what they're like, or you know, but that song I can remember all of it, which must mean something about it. So, you know, got the tape out, had it transferred to digital, and um, there was nothing on it that I wanted to keep, it, but the song was great and the words were good, and I changed some of the words. Um, it's basically about somebody from the third world coming to the, the the first world you know the developed world and the what what they face in in that process um yeah so um there are you know there are songs kicking around and and weirdly they can crop up later you know um and it's i think it's, it's one of the better ones on the album i think it's uh really strong did you have like any version of it <clears throat> anywhere, or did you, or, or would it have been lost if you hadn't pulled it off the two inch? Like, well, did you have it, like a little just sat on the two inch? <laughs> really? Like you didn't have like it written down, or or even like on a demo or anything? No, no, it was just it was just on that oh, on that tape. Um, it was crying from the two inch, yeah, to be yeah. reborn. <laughs> What's that sound? Uh, <laughs> it was the two inch tape. That's, crying. That's pretty cool. I can't believe you could find anything from me. I couldn't find my belt this morning. I wore it yesterday. 
No, well, I'm exactly the same. Okay. I'm exactly the same. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a pure fluke. I mean, I, um, no, I, I knew where that tape was, and you know, it was sitting with a couple of other tapes and stuff. But uh, no, I, I lose everything. Uh, How was the guitar tones on the tape? Were they good? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the tape had stuck together, so we had to bake it in an oven. Right. You know? Oh God! Um, but once that was done, we got it off, and it sounded. Sounded sounded good. The, the production, but you only get you only get weird. one shot at that. Where you're nervous, you get one or two shots. Yeah, yeah. Um, we had the same thing when we were when we did the CD versions of Entertainment and Solid Gold and stuff. Same thing. The tape was stuck together, and uh, and and we started we 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 started playing it. And all the stuff was coming uh, off, actually coming off as the tape was yeah. going round. This sort of brown, sticky powder was, <clears throat> you know, ah, oh, God, it's frightening. That's, that is frightening to watch that happen. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen that happen. <laughs> yeah, who, oh yeah, the mis we had on when we had on Lyle Pressler from Minor Thread. He was working on some original Misfit stuff to reissue in a box set, and he said they did it. And he was like freaking out because it was like it, if this just gets destroyed, it's gone forever. Yeah, you've, you've, you've got a few passes before it's gone, yeah. Oh, but you can hear the top end going as as it as it plays. You know, you play it once, then you play it back the second time, think, what's happened to the top end? Yep. You know, <laughs> they, really? Yeah. Really? That's what goes first. Uh, yeah. Oh. So you start cranking yeah, up. Yeah, because the emotion just pulls off and you just don't have as much signal there. So why the hell is everyone like, I want to record it on tape. I want to I go know. back to the way it was. I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I'm not a tape. Coldplay got these dipshits releasing cassettes again. I know, I know. Coldplay came around. Coldplay at one point were thinking of having me produce them with their first album. Wow! And they came to my studio, and I was showing them around, and you know, and everybody was smiling and it's like, "Yeah, we're going to be doing this." And then um, Chris, the, the singer, said, uh, "So, Andy, where's uh, where's your tape machine?" <laughs> and I went, "Well." And I do actually have a, a, a sort of in the in the where the power supplies are. There's there's a space for a tape machine to be brought in if needed, right. and all the wiring's there. And I said, well, this is where it would go if if we hire one in. What, so you don't normally work on tape? Uh, no. Oh, all my favourite records were done on tape. <laughs> and then they, then they were all frowning. So then they left. Did you, did you say it's because computers weren't around, fuck nuts? <laughs> I, I didn't, no. I was still trying to be polite at that point. That's, that's very kind. Very, very English. I like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember some garage band at some point years ago talking about, like, so enviously of this record that had been made with one microphone in the middle of the room. And I was like, dude, they only had one microphone. Like, there's no reason to emulate that sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like, that's what they had. I know, I know, I know. I mean, I think the one, the, the kind of exception, you know, that kind of fetishizing the old way of doing things, I think it works for Jack White. Oh, yeah. Because he totally fetishizes, yeah. you know, the old gear. And there's that studio in East London, I think it's called Toe Rag, uh-huh. yeah. um, where the engineer walks around in a in a kind a lab of coat. lab coat. It's awesome. Like they used to do at, at Abbey Road. Yeah. And there's no gear that was been made since 1969. Yeah. Um, 
but you know some people make that really work yeah but um not everybody yeah you're well yeah jack white knows his shit that's for sure and also he only needs about eight tracks to record to Mm -hmm. you know but when you down. when you embrace like new technology and use plugins and things, do you find that daunting when you go on tour? If like each song that whatever in your myriad of songs you're choosing to play that night has a different sound for your guitar? Yeah, well, I'm right in the middle of that little problem as we speak. Um, you know, I'm I'm tr- I'm trying to figure out if I basically use a laptop as my um, sound. Uh, you know, for, for the guitar. So the guitar goes into the laptop um, and, you know, we create whatever sound for whatever song, uh, including the old ones, including, you know, damaged goods or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but also, I'm not sure how I would do the songs off the new record without doing that. But it's complicated uh, and yeah. time-consuming, you know, but... Um, I've got I've got something for you. We just it was in this room. We just pulled it out. I'll show it to you before you leave. Say it's, uh, it's an amp that basically will emulate anything that you want. It's called Kempner. Yeah, no, they're brilliant. Have you have you tried them? Well, um, Hotte, who is the guitarist, who there's one song on on the new album called Dead Souls, which we co-wrote together. Uh, me and Hotte. He's not. Have you ever heard of him? No. Okay, he's Japan's biggest rock star, okay? okay? <laughs> Getting our international education uh, yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, that what he's best known for here is doing the Kill Bill theme oh, yeah. thing, which is called Fighting Without, <laughs> fighting without Honor. <laughs> yeah, most people think RZA did it. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, I thought Rizzo did that, but he did that. Say again? I thought, yeah, I thought Rizzo did that, but he did that, you're saying? He did that. It's called, it's called War war Without Honor and something or other. And it's Hot 8. Okay. And an orchestra, you know? Battle Without Honor? Yeah. Okay. Battle Without Honor and... Or Humanity. Or, and Humanity. Yeah. Yeah. And um, <laughs> anyway, he's a, he's a bit of a fan of, of mine and... Um, that's oh, a long story, but but we, he, um, so we we became friends. He lives in, he he's married to um, Japan's biggest female star, nice. <laughs> who's who's called Mickey. Um, and, Her, I think I have heard of actually. Okay, and and they had a they had a daughter, and he said we've got to get out of Japan because we can't walk down the street without getting mobbed, right? Because there's two of them, you know, like royalty, yeah. you know. So they so they moved to London. And um, that's where they live. Um, so we, yeah, we we wrote that song together. And he had one of those—is it a Kempner? Kempner, yeah, Kempner amps, and it's amazing. You're right. I mean, it's you, you can. The thing that's crazy about it is that you can play something on a some other amp, say an yeah. AC30 or something, and the Kempner kind of listens to yes. it and copies it. Yeah, it's kind it's of insane. the equivalent of um, <clears throat> what do you call it? Uh, when you like sample a reverb of a room, I exactly. Forget what that's but, called. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, I know it's what you the mean. Same thing. Yeah, same you thing. run a signal. Yeah, and the cool thing is you can. It can be more than you know. You can even if you have effects plugged in or whatever, you can kind of like sample the whole 
thing. So you could have a different setting for every song. I don't it sounds like a fucking commercial, but it's a it's a brilliant <laughs> amp. I mean it's really and it's very roadworthy, I would think. It, yeah, Brad, it Brad, I amazing. love hearing you it talk looks about it. It's got little lights all over it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, so we've got a couple here, I'll show them to you. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> with with this idea of sort of fetishizing the past, I mean, how do you not be like how do you not get cynical? I feel like when you hear like a newer band like, oh, I've seen saw a band do this 20 years ago then i saw a band do this for like how do you sort of because i feel like that must i feel like i get that way so much I can't what imagine. cynical about people just cynical like i've heard this before like you get like you know what i mean like because new bands kind of obsessing about the sound from a certain time exactly and trying to do it themselves and i, I mean basically i think people possibly spend a little bit too much time being retro right you know um i think it's better when people take things that they love and move on you know sublimate it and and um take the the crucial take the crucial ideas from it but don't kind of ape the you know the more kind of superfluous things the, the you know that i don't know i, I think we we seem to be in a little bit of a retro age you know the which may be something to do with a lack of confidence or something. Too. Yeah. Um, well, there's that fine line of what of being influenced and copying, and it's yeah. like, you know, a- Oasis could barely handle it. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, yeah. and it's, you know, we just saw what happened with Sam Smith and Tom Petty, and I'm pretty sure that was harmless. Like, they didn't set out to do that, but it happened. So it's, it's really interesting how... Um, Sam Smith, the, the British singer... Yeah, yeah, he did that song, Stay With Me. It, if you speed it up, it sounds like Tom Petty's Won't Back Down. Right. So so now Tom Petty gets 12% of that song. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Really? Yeah. But what's funny is how you're talking about the Chili Peppers is uh, their song, Danny California, uh, is exactly like Last Dance with Mary Jane. And he said, I won't sue them because there's too many lawsuits. Right. <laughs> right. I guess it depends on he, the tune. In, in Tom Petty's defense, he didn't sue and in, and he claims that that was never even on, on the books to sue him. Yeah, for, yeah, that's what I'm saying. He didn't sue Chili Peppers, but he sued this, you know. No, no, kid. he didn't sue. He didn't sue Sam. Oh, well, they do a cease and desist, or no? He just contacted him. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I will sue you if oh, you yeah. don't give me a share of your royalties. I, but, and also, though, I mean, in his and I'm not a huge Tom Petty defender, but. The first time I heard that song, I was absolutely 100% confident that it was a, that I was hearing a cover of something terribly right. familiar, and I couldn't place it. <clears throat> what, his song won't back down? No, when I heard the, the first time I heard the Sam Smith song, I was positive that it was a cover song. That, and I was like, I, I don't recognize the words. Yeah. So, so you, yeah. So I think what you're saying is, is that successful hit songs have that feel of being like you've heard it before. Well, I mean, the melodies, it's not just the melody, but it, the arrangement and the three parts of it are, uh, I'm not going to get into it, but I, I think it, Tom Petty was valid. He had a valid... Uh, I, I concur. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting how what Jonah's point about like fetishizing, fetishizing the past is that, you know, there's a lot of tours happening now where people want to hear an album in its entirety. Is that something you've ever done? Or yeah, absolutely. Like to do? Yeah, there's a lot of... Um, come and you know do, do do the entertainment tour is is typically the one that that pops up you know um um i mean we, we've done at various times we've done shows uh which which is you know the show is you play the album um which is fair enough you know um but done that done that 
yeah. a few times, but not many. I was curious, you said sort of John was sort of done with, didn't want to tour anymore, have that lifestyle. I mean, what kind of keeps you kind of motivated to stay on the road sort of and, and keep keep going with it? Yeah, it's hard work. Um, it's bloody hard work. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know, I mean, I just... I, I think over the years, John was always a bit... Um, he'd be sort of into it for a while and then he'd lose patience and want to go and do something else. And so Gang of War has sort of been a bit, you know, a bit of an off-on project, you know, um, which can at times be a little frustrating, you know, when when you feel you've got some momentum and you want to do something. And, I, you know, I think it's the... I think it's the, 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 the making of the songs. It's, it's like, you know, I, I, I do get a... a a real big kick out of out of of making what I think is a is a great song, um, and that's not just the you know the kind of bare bones of the music and the lyrics, but also the sound of it and the way the guitar works and the way that works with the rhythms and you know the whole thing. Uh, I get a kick out of that, and and um, and, and and when you when you perform live and it, and and it's good and it's good feedback from everybody and that's pretty special too so i mean you know it's yeah yeah dude i don't see how people tour i think it's the hardest thing ever <laughs> yeah and i haven't done it near as long as these two guys you're sitting in the room with and i can't even imagine how you do it yeah yeah dragging my weary bones around <laughs> and around please <laughs> Please, but but now do you you like being in the studio with other artists as well, where you're not responsible for the creative process, just the sound. Yeah, yeah, um, yes. But I'm always interfering with the creative process, and you know? I can't, <laughs> can't keep my hands out of it. You know, um, why don't we do this? Let's change the drum part. Let's, uh, you know, so uh, you, yeah, you have to kind of um, know when to hold back. I think you know and. Uh, um, and sometimes it, I, I, I produced a band called Fight Like Apes from from Dublin, and we and, and I I really didn't mess with it too much. I mean, I went to Dublin a few times and and sat with him, going through the songs and doing little tweaks here and there to the arrangements and stuff like that. But then they came over to London and came into my studio, and we set everything up so it was live takes, um, which I often don't do that. Uh, I have a tendency to do things bit by bit, but but we deliberately set it up to do live takes, and and there it was really about just getting it right and getting the energy right, and and make sure everybody's happy and all of those things. Um, but then there's other situations where where you know that um, where I will kind of be in there, kind of changing things and and uh, changing drum beats and 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 stuff. Um, so it's not, it's not always just guessing the sound or whatever with, with other people. And sometimes it's, uh, there's, there's an awful lot of people I've kind of ended up co-writing with, you know, when I did the, the Killing Joke record, they, um, they, I heard one track and it was very strongly implied that they had an album, album's worth of material. <laughs> And we kind of worked on this. We were working on this first track, and I said, hey, "By the way, can I hear some of this other stuff?" And everybody was kind of looking around, going, <laughs> um, and 
So are you saying you don't have any other material? Uh, no, we've got lots of ideas. <laughs> so it, it turned out they didn't, you know, they had, they had the one song. Um, so then we kind of talked about the whole thing and so it was decided that I would come up with drum beats. Uh, I'd program drum beats and then the others would put their bits on to the drum beat. Um, and And so I ended up co-writing the whole thing and we always knew that my program drums would be replaced at the very end of the record so we had all the guitars done we had the basses the vocals everything done and then i um uh came over to uh, to la and uh, recorded the drums with um um dave um dave from uh um, um lombardo Dave Grohl? Dave Grohl, yeah. Oh, right on. Um, oh, that's, yeah, I forgot about that. Dave Grohl, yeah. Uh, and, and he was amazing. And actually, we, we, I had a false start because I came over and had a little try with the drummer from System of a Down. Okay. Who, and um, I walked into the studio and his drum kit was set up and my heart slightly sank because there was sort of... 14 rototoms <laughs> followed by 12 slightly ever getting larger yeah. toms five floor toms gongs and an array of symbols I thought oh no this isn't going to work and, <laughs> and they're quite it, some of these drum parts were quite difficult because there's um, there's, lot, there's lots of gaps where you have to count like 13 and then the beat comes back in and it, anyway it just didn't really work so you had to settle for Dave Grohl. I had to settle yeah. for Dave Grohl. And <laughs> That's so hard to lower your standards. I know. Um, but, you know, with, with, with modern technology, you can fix stuff, you know. You know yeah. Somebody who's so hopelessly out of time as Dave. <laughs> now, he, he was extraordinary, actually. Um, He's so good. So good. So good. And the... The way, because, you know, everything else had been recorded and he was the last thing to go on it. Uh, you know, I said to him, you know, do you, you don't mind if we don't do symbols and stuff? He said, Andy, you know, I was going to do it all separately. I said, oh, brilliant, that's perfect. Um, and he said, I don't, I don't want to change the drum parts at all. You know, I'm not interested in, you know, putting my interpretation of it. I'm going to do these drum parts because I love them. And... So we 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 did that, you know. We put down the the hi hat and snare drum parts and the and the kick drum part and all of that. And then after we got all that done, uh, it's like, okay, Dave, now just go crazy with drum fills. Just just go just, just do drum fills everywhere through the take. And if there's any nice ones, I'll just drop them in in the right place. I can just cut them and drop them in. So he did that, and it was pretty amazing. You know, every drum fill was different, and every drum fill was absolutely in time. And drums normally speed up when they do a drum fill and come back in just ahead of the beat. But he didn't do any of that. He was always absolutely locked in time. And so I could just go... Th I mean, they were all amazing. You know, they're all different. You know, the triplets and dotted eighth notes and whatever. All different. And You didn't use a click at all? Uh, yeah, there was a click there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. He was playing to program drums. He was playing to there was there was the program drums and everything that had been recorded had been done to a click. Uh, okay, got it, got it. A click in inverted commas, you know, it, it it had been done 
strictly to the beat. So you know, so he, he had a click in his headphones, but okay. he, was, he was playing to to that stuff. And uh, it, was, it was absolutely rock solid. I mean, it's the best drummer I've ever worked with. I mean, the thing about Dave is just he's so much fun to watch play. Mm-hmm. Like, he's so physical. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like he pulls it, you know, he starts every beat with his arms up over his head, you know? It's yeah. like. Yeah, he hits them hard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah my, the drummer for Faith No More, Mike Borden, had this great quote, which is uh, two things as a drummer sit up straight and hit every time as hard as you can because that's mm-hmm. what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Well, I, okay, I have to speak up here. I have to tell you, drummers out there, that's not necessarily true. There, every drum has a has a certain, it resonates perfectly at a certain sort of velocity. So if you find that, then you'll sound like you're hitting as hard as you can. I'd like to tell everybody out there that Brad is a guitar player. <laughs> that is true. And Abused he doesn't drummers. play drums. <laughs> so there. <laughs> I've also I also the founder of Mad Musicians Abused by Drummers. So <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of that about actually. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I've learned something today. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. That was awesome. I was like, uh, so this interview just happened and I was like, I was like, he probably has so much press. Andy probably has so much press to do. Like, he's going to want to get out of here. I was like looking at the clock. And then him and his publicist, Dan, just like hung out for like an hour and just like chilled out. And we just like bullshitted, had some coffee. Uh, I kept being like, do you want more coffee? Because I was like, the long, more coffee is the longer he'll stay. (laughs) Uh, But yes, what a like awesome down to earth dude. Very cool. Yeah, we kept. I talked to him about the fact that he uh, left his laptop at home by accident on this tour, so he's trying to do everything on his iPhone. And oh yeah, I was that's like, gotta be that's tough. my nightmare. He's like in the cab, thinking like, do I turn around and miss my flight? I was like, I would have probably turned around. But I don't know. I guess I guess if there's Wi-Fi here, there's Wi-Fi everywhere. I guess he's sort of. It's just like, yeah, he was pointing out like just like you know getting your. Tickets, you know, printing your tickets out and stuff. From I'm just addicted to doing all that on the computer. I know, but I'd be like, maybe for him. I mean, like, like the guy's been touring since like the 70s. I feel like he toured for so long without a computer. He knows how to tour with, without a laptop. I, mean, I think he should. <laughs> I don't know if I can. Well, I told him it was probably good training to like. He'll probably pick up some iPhone skills. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I yeah I I feel like I don't like bringing my computer unless I have to like write like unless I have to write an article or something. Yeah, well, you know, you're you're of the younger generation. You're of the thumb generation. So I feel like I'm kind of like in between. Like I didn't grow up with that stuff, right. but I've had it for like a while. Like I, I feel like I'm just like... You do a lot on your iPhone though that I probably... I, I try to, but... I, I don't know. know. I like I to type complete sentences. But like I feel like you talk to Brad and he's like... I'll be like complain about something and Brad's like oh I have like seven apps about that let me show it to you I'm like how do you know about this like I don't know about any of this stuff like how do you find out about stuff he's like I'm like I can't remember his password he's like Brad's like here's this app it generates passwords stores them all like all I have to do is type in and I still so I'll download the thing and then I'll never use it <laughs> yeah I was telling Andy he should get a keyboard for his phone while he's here because then he can because you know you can get little like bluetooth keyboards to use yeah. your phone with yeah I do, I do know geek stuff, and that was what I loved about this podcast. We got to geek out on the guitar stuff a little bit. Although I could probably do a full geek out podcast with Andy. Yeah, I I like that too. I was um, 
I was trying to steer it back at some point because I was like, this could just become a gear podcast, which I would love <laughs> and you would love, but I feel like some people listening would be like... No, you were good to what? rein that in because I would let it go. And Steven, if you're listening, hate to say it, but after I stopped recording, he revealed that his favorite uh, Marvel superhero is Silver Surfer. Yeah, because he's an existentialist. Yes. Which I feel like that topic alone could be an entire podcast. I think it actually was an entire podcast. I think we did like a Marvel podcast about that. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, we didn't get into existentialism, situationalism, which I think is like what the cover of entertainment's about. But we'll, we'll, we'll do a, a super highbrow intellectual podcast with Andy next time he's yeah. here. We we, talked, we, me we and Brad about, won't be on it. We talked about touring and how he's getting all his shirts made at uh, Commonwealth Press. Yeah, we did. Uh, he thinks they're just the right people for that. Well, yeah, for post-punk, I would say that's probably a good call. Mm. And um, he likes the six free shirts that you get. Yes. Uh, Commonwe- you thank, thank you to CommonwealthPress.com. Um, to Commonwealth Press. Check out, get six free shirts at CWPress.com slash podcast. Um, visit us online at GoingOffTrack.com. We're on Twitter, GoingOffTrack. Leave us a nice review at iTunes. You can donate to the podcast, help support it. Um, and definitely check out the new Gang of Four record, What Happens Next, when it drops on February 24th. So thanks to Andy for coming by. Thank you. Thanks to Brad for hosting us at Rubber Tracks. Thank you. And buy every Gang of Four record.